Hey everybody, welcome to Geeky Dads Talk About Geeky Things. I'm JJ Johnson, and joining me back on the show this week is Ted Ashley. Ted, what's going on, man? Man, how's it going, JJ? Great to be back. I'm doing good. Hey, I just got this new book. Uh, I wanted to tell you about because you're in Charleston, North, uh, South Carolina, right? Right around Correct. that area. Okay, so it's it's the origins of the Will of Time. And, oh wow! Uh, yeah, it's all about Ro Robert Jordan and his life and some of the inspiration he had. And so they talk a lot about the two rivers and you know in Charleston and, and the Citadel yep. and all that. So it makes me want to go back and vacation in uh, Charleston sometime, just kind of walk around and explore some of these places because I'm a big Will of Time fan. So. I thought that was interesting, just because you had seen your neck of the woods, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've been uh, been living in Charleston for um, you know over forty years. Uh, we can we can definitely you know show you the best places to go and and get you the the grand tour, man. It's a great Charleston's a fantastic place to visit. Um, very very tourist friendly. Lots of history, lots of architecture, gardens. So it's it's a really up the and probably the food is probably second only to New Orleans. Yeah, we had some great food there. We had some great seafood, some good barbecue. And, of course, I had to get some boiled peanuts while I was there as well. Oh, yeah. All right, so tonight, Ted and I are going to be talking about Andor, man. Oh, so good. <sighs> okay, so here, <clears throat> here's the deal. I mean, there's so much going on with Star Wars when we think about what Disney has been doing. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, I, I know Kenobi had mixed reviews. There was a lot of people that didn't like it. I, I felt like it was a lot of fan service, and I really enjoyed it because I like popcorn fiction. Sure. But uh, this show, I mean, the depth of this show is unbelievable. I mean, I've never, like, seen a Star Wars show played out where they go, where there's just, I'm ha having to hang on to nearly every word in every shot that is being said. It was obviously had a bigger budget than Kenobi and probably the Book of Boba Fett. I would even argue maybe even bigger than uh, Mandalorian. But the casting, the acting, the dialogue, the writing, absolutely unbelievable. What, were, what are your first thoughts on Andor? And before we get started, folks, I'm just going to be straight up tell you this. If you haven't watched Andor... Shut it off right now because <laughs> we are going to be talking spoilers all night. And for those of you who have not watched the show, I'm going to give a quick recommendation before Ted and I really get into this. This show is not a binge show. You don't just sit down and say, hey, I'm going to watch 12 episodes of Andor in one day. But I am going to, I am going to break it down like this. There are four distinct blocks I think would be helpful for anybody wanting to watch Andor. You know, the first block is sort of that episode one through three. I call that sort of the it's the recruitment block where he's getting recruited. Um, the second block is the heist block, which is like episodes four, five, and six. Then you have the prison block, which is seven, eight, nine, and ten. And then, of course, the finale block is the last two episodes, 11 and 12. So think of it just as sort of in those chunks. And maybe if you want to sit down and watch a chunk at a time, uh, but no, this is definitely not a bit. What are your first thoughts, man? It really would be good to take it arc by arc because if they really do that that really well, you know, 
<clears throat> I was struck by how personal this series was. The the movies and and even some of the other shows, you know, we see the empire, we see it as evil on almost a, a mythological scale. And and that requires mythological heroes to fight it and 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 to win. But with Andor, it's a much more personal story where we're seeing the people, the people who want to use the empire for power, the people who want to fight the empire. So it's a much smaller story and it's a much much more intimate story and one that that I really um, really enjoy quite a bit. Yeah, I'm gonna have to be honest with you. The, the first time I watched this, it was on a Wednesday night, late at night. It was about 9:30 at night, and I had worked all day. <clears throat> then I had gone up to church to help my wife. I came home, had our nightly WWE match where I had to wrestle the kids in the bed. <laughs> and so by the time I sat down, I was beat and. I, I, I watched it and I got done. I immediately just said, okay, I have to rewatch this because I had to reframe my mind. Mm-hmm. This, this is not your typical Star Wars story. No, they really lean away. They really lean away from a lot of the pulp and a lot of the things that, that you would see. And I, I think it really, it really works for this type of story that they're telling. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, the slow pace of stories, they don't often they don't pay off sometimes. Sometimes it, when you're waiting to sort of capture that audience's attention, this one just it has a slow buildup at first. But then as you get into it and as you get to the next episode and the next episode, you're really just kind of pulled into this story. And I, I, I go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I really had to take a leap of faith after episode two because the first two episodes just kind of end. And I'm like, I was a little confused. It was a little slow, but I'm like, I'm going to stick with it. And just like you're saying, like, uh, the third episode was was great. It kind of answered some questions and drew you in. And then you get into that next arc, and that kind of, the, the, the whole heist thing drew you in. And then you get to the prison arc, and then you're just so invested. And then you get to the finale arc, and it's like, this is incredible. Absolutely. Now, I want to get into these characters, because... Andor really is built around the characters. And some of the characters it's built around are not Cassian Andor. And one of the things I like about this is sometimes when you think of a a Star Wars, you know, it really does borrow heavily from the hero's journey and all the archetype-type characters. I think that the, the best achievement for Andor is it sort of moves away from those one note sort of archetypes and it really comes into a multifaceted characters sort of like you get in literature really so what i want to do is let's let's, we're going to delve into five characters and in the course of talking about these five characters we're going to pull in some of the side characters as well because we don't want to leave them out but we're going to we're going to talk about cassian and luthan and dedra nemic and mon motha all five of those so let's go ahead and let's just dive in straight in with Cassian because obviously this is his story where we were introduced to him in Rogue One. We know how his story ends, but there's something about this uh, character. And I'll be honest with you, when I heard they were doing Andor, I was kind of like, eh, you know, mm-hmm. and, then, and then I started watching this. And it's just like, like you said, by the time I got past that, heist and into the prison arc i was just like oh my gosh so 
let's talk about Cassian. What are your initial thoughts about Cassian? Yeah, it struck me. Cassian starts out very passive in the story. The story is kind of happening to him in those first couple of episodes. And then over the course of the story, you see him become more and more active. And his arc is so interesting because pre-story, he's a revolutionary um, in in reacting to Clem's death. But then as the story starts, he's kind of this self-centered, complacent, almost, you know, I won't say deadbeat, but just kind of, you know, he's always in trouble. He owes everybody money. And then as each of these people that he meets, whether it's Luthen or Nimix or Skeen or Kino, Kino or Melshi or, and, and obviously Marva's influence, you know, he learns lessons from each of those people and it turns him in from this very complacent, very self-centered, you know, kind of person to the kind of person that will decide eventually to follow Jen Erso on a basically a you know a suicide mission to Scarif. And and really what what binds all these characters together to me is this idea of sacrifice. You know, they they are all looking at that this idea of of what what are we going to sacrifice? What are we willing to sacrifice? You know, are we willing are we willing to to borrow the line from one of the characters, are we, are we willing to burn our lives to create a sunrise we'll never see? Yeah. You know, when I when I think about Cassian, exactly this theme of sacrifice, right there at the beginning, he is not sacrificial. He is thinking about everything that he's lost. And the, you see this in the fact that at the beginning, he's looking for his sister. Now, I understand that, you know, you're wanting to find uh, somebody that you've been separated from. But it, it just goes to show that Cassian is, is looking inward at the beginning. Now, I think the pivotal moment for Cassian, because I don't really think he ever commits to the quest. Like, you know, when you think of a hero's journey, you know, they have that great debate moment. I really think most of this show is him just debating whether or not he should be even be a part of the rebellion. I, yeah. To me... He does not reach that point where he is sort of committed to it until that final episode. And for me, it comes with that part where the scene where he goes to the brick of his father, Clem. Yes. And he has that flashback saying, now, hello, this is how you do a flashback. (laughs) This is how you make a flashback scene work. Uh, And right there in that moment, he sees his, you know, his father's working on some tinkering with something. And he basically says, the man who sees everything is more blessed than cursed. Then he goes on. He says, people don't look down to where they should. They don't look down. They don't look past the rust. Not us, though. A, eyes open, passionate possibilities everywhere. But up until this moment, Everything that Cassian's been doing, really, it's about the purpose of just running away from his problems. He's thinking about this or that or whatever is going to make him rich in the moment. And here, this is that turning point. This is that part where he makes the decision to stop looking inward, stop looking at his problems, stop looking at what he's going to do, and really start to help the people of Ferex and to really start to fix what is broken and make it better and it's so beautifully shown right here um but yeah this that that because that 
that flashback, it it's that man in the moment mirror. It's what motivates him to take action for the remainder of that episode. Yeah. And it set us, it sets up this beautiful mirror in the first three episodes. You've got, you've got B2. And I, I love B2. B2 is my, is my new favorite droid. I want, I want to, I want to be too. Um, but you've got B2 and Bix and Brasso and they are lying and they are covering for him and they're helping him escape initially. And then in that final episode, after he makes that key turn, he's the one who turns around and he saves B2 and Bix and Brasso and lets them escape. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I said, his arc is, is so, <clears throat> there's times where it's just sort of all over the place. And, you know, at the beginning, it's just, it's him about just, you know, he kills everybody or those two cops, I guess. Yep, yep. He's on the run. And honestly, he, it's, it's, he's taking the job just to get a payday, just to get out of it. Yeah. And where does he, he goes right to that? I don't remember the name of it. He goes right to the pleasure planet. You know, he goes right to the, the beach planet. You know, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't, I, you know, I thought for sure, like, okay, well, you know, he's going to do this job. And then, then Luthen's going to recruit him. And that's how he's going to get in. And no, he's like, I'm out. Take my money and I'm going to go, you know, drink up and, and have a good time on the beach, you know? Yeah, it's like he won the lottery and all of a sudden he's just uh, out partying or something like yeah. that. It's crazy just the way his his arc goes in that direction. And of course, we know what happens. He ends up getting arrested. Obviously, uh, you know, sort of a, you see the power of the Empire. Um here you see how they will imp they're imprisoning people giving them these ridiculous sentences for the purpose of it's sort of like a wartime economy hmm. when you think of when you think of like germany during world war ii everything came under a wartime economy and that's sort of how they're using the prison system is to to build these parts which we will get to what they were building oh, yeah. Here in a little bit. All right, we'll talk about that. But I think that's also where you see the first turn in his character. Because if you remember back, Nimic and him have this conversation um, right before the heist about how Cassian slept like a rock, right? Right. Because Cassian's like, yeah, well, you know. But if you notice the night before the escape on Nikina 5, he can't sleep. He's He's invested now. He can't sleep. That's true. That is very true. He can't sleep. He's sort of like Nemec. He's he's finding that he's got something to, or at least in that in that situation, he's got something to live for. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the prison real quick because there's oh. some there's some interesting characters that Cassian in, uh, interacts with here. Um, what were some of the obviously? What's his face? I'm drawing a blank on his name, man. Um. The one that gives the speech over the uh, PA system. Kino Loy. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I've seen some wild theories about him. No, uh, no. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't buy that one bit. Uh, just because it's the same actor. No, I don't. I don't buy it for a second. No, I don't either. So we're not even going to go down that path. I think that's. I mean, it's it's a cool idea, but no, it's it's too on the nose. One well, Scaris actually, the the actor, uh, he actually almost refused the role because he was worried about that. Yeah, yeah. So, but he is a he's an interesting character because here's a guy who you want to hate him, but at the same time you understand his logic. 
I only got so many more shifts left. Right. I'm here. And that's exactly how somebody in prison thinks. Look, I'm going to finish my time out. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Get out of here. Yep. And I, it's slowly one by one. You can see the doubt sort of creeping into his, into his mind. And I don't, I'm trying to think when it was that he actually, you know, began to believe because even after the death of um, the older gentleman, right. I don't think he necessarily was. I still think there was a part of him that was just like, I have this many shifts left. So, what do you- so the way, the way I saw that was if you remember all during that episode, Cass is starting to try to figure out how he's going to escape. And he's asking him, then the, you know what he's listening episode. He's asking Keno over and over again, how many guards on every level? How many guards on every level? How many guards? On, and Keno will just shut it down. He's like, like, forget it, you know? And that's, and then after the old man's death and after, but not so much the old man's death, but after hearing the story of the, of the prisoner who was let go, he, he was released, right? But he wasn't released. He just showed up on a new floor. And the realization, I'm never getting out of here. And the very next time Cassian asks the question, how many on how many guards on each level? Kino Lloyd looks at him and says, Never more than 12. And that's the moment you know Kino's on board. And yeah. then he gives that incredible speech the next morning to the prisoners um, in his cell block. Like, guys, I'm going into this like I'm already dead. So and the crazy thing about it is he knows like you, you come in that transport, right? He knows that prison is completely surrounded by water. He knows he can't swim. So he knows he's not getting out, but he's going to get everybody else out. It just, it, it almost, if, if I can pull in a, a religious reference, it almost reminded me of Moses, like the, the man who, who brings his people to the promised land, but can't go in himself. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I like about this is if you haven't seen Rebels or if you haven't read the Thrawn, new Thrawn trilogy. By, oh, so good. They, I mean, when you read the Thrawn trilogy and Rebels, which are happening right around this time, you learn during that time that the, uh, you know, funds are being diverted from Thrawn's TIE, TIE fighter program. Which probably could have won them the war. The Tide Defender would have actually won them. Would absolutely have won them the war. Right, exactly. And they're they're moving it over here towards this secret project, which we know is the creation of the Death Star. But Tarkin is always t- saying, you know, you know, between Rebels and Thrawn, that it's badly behind schedule, mm-hmm. and the it is badly behind schedule. Most likely has to do with the fact of the revolt of these prisoners, because yep. here's the deal. If you have not watched the post credit scene, <laughs> just go watch the post credit scene because everything they're doing in that empire or in that prison. And most people already had this theory. Anyway, it's they're building the pieces for the death star. And yeah. so you kind of see all this canon tying together that the reason that Tarkin tells Thrawn it's badly behind and they're having to divert funds is because of the prison revolts this entire time. And so it's kind of cool to see all this come together 
uh, really in a unique sort of way uh, that just kind of ties it all together. But this goes back to, you know, okay, so I want to talk, uh, okay, I'm going to save this this discussion till we get to our last character when we talk about Nemec, because okay. I think there's, I think there's something very specific and I'm going to come back to this point right here. And it has to do with how the empire rules. Yes. And, and it had, you know, what you just said, well, go, had they just gone with Ron's tie defender program, <laughs> they would have won the war. And so we'll come back to this point here in a minute. Now let's go ahead and move on from Cassian and, you know, let's, because we can't cover all the characters, folks. So I wish we could. I wish we could, but there's so many out there. But let's move on to Mon Motha. Yes. Okay. I got some thoughts on her, and I want to talk about that here in a minute. I want to hear what you had to say first about her, because this is the first time outside of, um, obviously, A New Hope and Rogue One yep. that we're really kind of seeing the early parts of her career as this rebellion leader. Well, so, and the delete, the one deleted scene from Revenge of the Sith. Oh, that's true. That is true. That is yeah. true. So, what I found so fascinating about Mon Mothma is we we've seen we've seen her at the end of her journey where she is, you know, this paragon, this ideal rebel leader, you know, someone we want to aspire to and and lift up. But now we're seeing the steps that she had to take to get there, and the choices that she had to make, like, and it's really showing how you make the first kind of dubious choice and, and it's exploring these moral boundaries of the rebellion that we really haven't got into, you know, that you make the first dubious choice and it makes it easier to make the next dubious choice. And the next thing you know is you're sitting down with Davos Scullin or I'm probably mispronouncing his name, you know, a, essentially a gangster to talk, talk money laundering, you know? So, and then this whole question that, that goes through her thread of, you know, is she going to sacrifice her daughter for the rebellion? You know, and then, and then, you know, made it so much worse when her daughter is like, oh yeah, I'm totally, you know, she's chanting the old ways of Chandrilla, which, you know, Mothman's going to have to use to, to do the, the, the introduction there to, to Skull and Son. So it was just really interesting for me to see what she's having to go through, you know, smiling, saying one thing, but meaning another, you're trying to throw the empire off her scent, you know, planting stories about her husband's gambling because she knows the driver's listening in. So it just, it, it gave me a whole nother view on this character who's always been kind of this paragon. You know, it's like, no, the, you know, rebellions happen because people are willing to make decisions. And, and again, the, the, the theme of sacrifice, even with, with her character. Yeah. I think you see the genius of who she is and the part that really it was that final episode because she knows that they're watching her bank account mm -hmm. right she knows her driver is listening and she purposely slips up here and mentions her husband's gambling now you know and i don't know did you catch the the reference to canto blight yes i did that was like because ah. whatever you think of of the last jedi canto bite is awesome <laughs> yeah Absolutely. And I think I think it brings a, a more, you know, ideal view of this, of people in society, even there, uh, of what they'll do to make money. But, you know, so basically to the public, it's going to look like they're marrying off their daughter to sort of cover his debt. Yep. Thus, 
sort of explaining all this sizable hole in her account. But at the same time, nobody then will be able to suspect her of continuing to fund the rebellion. But here's the deal. And this is where, you know, we're talking about the moral, the boundaries mm-hmm. of what it is. And we'll get into that more with our discussion on Luthen. But she marries off her daughter to this gangster son for the purpose of trying to hide what she is doing. And it is cold, it is calculated, but it is necessary. And it it just goes to show you the sacrifice that rebellion requires. And that right there, up until that point, because she had sort of right there at the beginning, uh, in episode 11, she says, I'm not going to do this. And he looks back at her and he (laughs) says, that is the first untrue thing you said. And you see the doubt in her face. Like, yeah. I know it's the end true. I have to do this. Yeah, I think her character was nailed this season. Um, I want to see where they go further with her. Um, I, you know, it's like it's it's unfortunate because, you know, sometimes we think of a uh, when somebody is killed in a um, in battle and we say that, you know, it was a it was necessary or is a in order to advance a cause or whatever. But when it's a young teenage girl, it, it just makes you think, oh my gosh, there's a lot more at stake here for her. So, uh, any more thoughts on her before we move on to Luthen? Um, no, I, th- I think I think that that's fine. I'm really curious to see where they go with her in, in season two, we can get a lot more in our, in our season two discussion, but where they, where they go with her in season two. And, and if I, I I'm very curious if the Gorman massacre is going to happen between season one, season two, or if that'll be part of season two. Yeah. Um, I would think that, you know, I could see them kind of sticking in there somewhere in the, you know, the middle and we not necessarily getting it, but um It'd be interesting to see if maybe they kicked off season two with it. I don't know. So, yeah. all right, let's move on to Luthen. Oh, Luthen. Okay, I've I've seen some theories on him too. Yeah, yeah. You and want you want to get into that? <laughs> let's let's get into that real quick before we get into him and the moral boundaries that he is because this is one theory that I'm kind of like you know this one makes a lot of sense and that theory is is that luthan is actually a you know a, a former jedi knight who has sort of shut himself off from the thor force sort of like uh, ahsoka does we know that a lot of jedi survived the purge we know that uh but they have shut themselves off from the force and sort of walked away which makes sense because you know when yoda tells luke that in you know return of the jedi the last of the jedi you will be uh, it still holds true, but there's a lot of theories out there that you know he could possibly be uh, somebody that survived a Jedi that survived the purge, and he sort of, you know, you know, sort of cut himself off from the Force. Now, what so, are your? Th- did you read Master and Apprentice by Claudia Gray? No, I didn't, but I heard it referenced in a, uh, a podcast I recently uh, listened to. Uh, as far as uh, what you're talking about, uh, go ahead. 
So Master Master and Apprentice is a, is a, a novel about uh, Qui Gon Jinn and Obi Wan Kenobi uh, by Claudia Gray. Re really, really good. But in there we meet a Padawan of Master Dooku, Count Dooku, uh, a Padawan named Rail Avaros, Luthen Rail, Rail Avaros, uh, considered extremely reckless, prideful. Even even Qui Gon Jinn, I mean Qui Gon Jinn was not like Qui Gon Jinn was gray. I, I will I will defend that Qui Gon Jinn was a gray Jedi. Even he thought that Rail Avaros was 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 a little bit reckless, a little bit prideful. Um, he was deemed controversial. I mean, this guy fits Luthen Rail, and with all the other clues we have about his Jedi connections, I I'm fairly. I'm fairly in the boat of, of Luthen Rail is Rail Avaros. Now, didn't Rail um, take a bunch of the relics from the Jedi Temple? Yes, he did. Okay, and here you have a you know Luthen who is dealing in rare artifacts, so he it it matches up as far as expertise is concerned too. And there's a lot of of Jedi artifacts in there as well. I mean, you've got You've got the Star Killer armor. You've got the holocrons. You know, he's he's got all this very Jedi. I mean, he's got a Jedi t uh, Guardian Temple mask. So there's a lot of things in there that kind of point to that. He's also got Padme's headdress, which is really weird. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is weird. Um, you know, but there's clues in his speech as well. You know, yes. you know, I I started this calculation. You know. 15 something this equation 15 years ago which of course we know what happened 15 years ago mm -hmm. uh, you know but you know there's so there's a lot of clues that are being dropped right there in that speech now kind of pivot the conversation you know his speech he oh. says one line obviously it was one of the most brilliant pieces of dialogue ever i've ever heard i had to go back and rewatch it like six times because i'm like this is unbelievable but the line he uses, he's doomed to use the tools of his enemies. And it brings up that age-old question. Who's a terrorist and who is a freedom fighter? Yeah. Now, there are a lot of people that would label Jefferson, Nelson Mandela, maybe even John Adams, George Washington. They would label them as terrorists, obviously. I, you know, but... Uh, and there's some people that would even say the building of Israel was built up on terror. Okay. But uh, he doesn't shy away from this. I mean, he raises the issue of it. He's aware of it. Yeah. And you know, what he, I think is so unique is when he, he brings up about his ego, mm -hmm. He's about how much ego has to do with it. ego. You don't just revolutionaries don't just rise up as leaders without having an ego. I mean, have, you ever read the words of Jeff Jefferson or listened to the speeches of John Adams? These guys were actors. They were performers and they do anything to, cra they craved an audience because they understood that, you know, in order to have a revolution, you have to put on that part. You have to play that part. You have to have ego and that dynamic. When you see it there, it's, it's problematic, but it's problematic in any revolution. And Luthen wrestles with, I think it grinds away at him. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, I think there is a sense of guilt there, but he can't give in to the sense of guilt. 
he he has to keep going because he understands and when when you know he he basically says the empire's got to get so strong and come down so hard yep people will rise up and it's necessary for that to happen so i think that he definitely there's this moral boundary there where we look at the empire and we're just thinking these guys are evil fascists we look at luther and we're like is he a terrorist or is he really a freedom fighter he he goes so far outside the lines but you see the anguish that it has in him what are your thoughts on that well he's he's fighting the good fight but you know he he lost his soul in it and and, and he knows it and i think ultimately it makes him a, a tragic figure but i i think he's a very realistic depiction of the kind of the kind of person that unfortunately you need in a in a real world revolution like you need you need somebody like Luthen. You know, he's not someone you want to idolize or aspire to, but it's absolutely necessary to have that kind of pragmatism to get to get himself, you know, off the ground. Um, I also thought it was interesting. Um, I don't think it's in that speech, but he calls himself a coward. I can't remember which character he says that to, but he says he's a coward, and he's absolutely right. He's always sending out someone else to fight even when the fighting starts on ferrix like this is what he wants but he's got no ownership of it like this isn't his fight he didn't he didn't create this you know but he even pulls back from that he gets sent to and, and vel to pack up and he even he even pulls back you know he watches the fighting the fighting from afar and and he sees himself kind of as a king piece on a chessboard that cannot you know, he can't be captured like he would have never gone after bix like Cassian risked everything to go out, you know, to go rescue Bix. Luthen would have never done that. Bix would have been, you know, a necessary sacrifice to him. He, he cut her. He cut her off. You know, he 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 cut off that whole transmission to make sure that they she couldn't be linked back to him. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He became one of my favorite characters when he first came on the scene. I was kind of like, I don't know about this guy, but. It's like with it's like with every character on this show. I'm just sort of like, yeah, I don't know about them, but then they quietly surprise you. Yeah. Which brings me to our next character. Um, I hope I'm saying her name right, Dedra. Dedra Miro, supervisor oh. Dedra Miro. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Hands down, in my opinion, we've we have Palpatine, we have Vader, you know. We've had Kylo Ren. We've had the First Order. We've had all these villains, you know, Governor Tarkin. But there's something about somebody who is so sold on the Empire's mission and wanting to advance in order to prove themselves mm. that is genuinely terrifying. And I think that you see this in the fact that she is so sold on this that she shuts all of her emotions off until you get to that final scene with her. And at that final scene, obviously, what is his name? Surreal? Cyril? Cyril. Cyril. Cyril Karn. Yeah. Cyril Karn. I, I, you know, and I don't know what his obsession is with her necessarily. But when she falls and she is, I mean, because she, she's, this, she is just cold. She has no empathy, it feels like. But you're seeing in that moment the fear and the emotion that she has had to 
keep locked up. That is a sacrifice even the Empire has to make. So she is keeping this emotion locked up until that scene. So here's my question is, is she going to be more terrifying and dangerous in the next season now that she has let all this emotion out? Or is she going to go back to just being her cold calculus? I don't know where she, they're going to go with her character because she is genuinely terrifying about what she will do in order to advance the cause of the empire. What are your thoughts on her? Well, first of all, I'm very mad at Tony Gilroy because you, you talked about how you change, how you think about somebody over the course of the show. Like the first few episodes, like he's, his writing is so good. You're pulling for her. Like she's so relatable. Like, I mean, who can't relate to office politics and like, you know, trying to trying to get something done and and, and the politics of your office are, are are working against you. And you know it's wrong to root for. Her. And then she gets to Ferrix and she tortures Bix and you realize, yeah, this is really, really wrong. But she is to me, she is absolutely in the vein of Thrawn and Cassio Tag, in that she is an incredibly competent asset in the early hunt for the rebellion. And she has a lot in common, not only with, with Cyril, but with Cassian, all three of them are slightly paranoid. All three of them have somewhat contrarian thinking. They all have extremely high IQ. Um, you know, she, she probably got to her position on merit, not because of a family connection or anything. They said she came from, from enforcement. She's willing to circumvent the rules just like Cyril was. She trusts her gut instincts just like Cyril did. And then you notice her interactions with her with her underlings. And unlike many of the in the Imperials, she doesn't lead out of fear, but she leads out of respect for her abilities and, and actually a concern for underlings. She there's that one scene where she tries to send her her underling home because it's been a long night. He's like, no, man, I'm 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 in this. And also like Cassian and like Cyril, she doesn't fit. Like, she doesn't fit in the Empire. Cyril doesn't fit in the Corporation. And Cassian doesn't really fit as a rebel. You know, they, they're they trying to fit in, but they're, they're not really the, the, the fits. You know, the, the fit for the Corporation's the the inspector who kind of, you know, goes away at the beginning of the of the of the mission. Or, you know, for the Empire, it's, it's Blevin. You know, but and for the rebels, it's much more Vel. Those are the fits. But these three, they, they don't they don't fit. Yeah. Yeah. And man, like, cause like you said, at the beginning, and this is where this show kind of, <laughs> it, it confused me <laughs> because I read the Thrawn books recently. You know, I got them, I got them back in August and I read all three of them. So good. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, you know, I still prefer the legends Thrawn just slightly, just slightly. But I have these three Thrawn books were unbelievable. And the entire time I'm sitting here thinking, this is Thrawn. He's the Empire. I'm rooting for this guy. Uh-huh. And and that you you find it right here. You find yourself sort of, who is the enemy here? Who am I supposed to be, you know, rooting for? Yeah. And that's so true when you think of um, of oppression, when you think of in, in, in our in our life, you know. Imagine you're you're back in you know colonial times, just living your life. Who do you root for? You root for the rebellion, or do you root for the English? Because which one's going to bring stability? 
Mm-hmm. That's what you got to think of. Because here's the thing about the about the the empire that I love about this show. It shows that the empire is built on order, and that that order rules uses fear as a method of ruling. Exactly. And, and that's where I want to get into our next character. And this is one of my favorite characters. And that is Nemec. <sighs> Love Nemec. <laughs> I'll tell you what. When he first came on to the, <laughs> like, okay, this is, you, you, you talk about subverting expectation. And I know a lot of people didn't like Ryan Johnson and The Last Jedi because he sort of subverted the Star Wars expectations. And and I think I think Ryan Johnson is obviously is a brilliant fan, uh, a writer. If you haven't seen Knives Out, I highly recommend it. But I think that this did this subverting the expectations a little bit different because every character, when when they come on the scene, you kind of form an impression about them, only to realize you're not really right about them. And and he's one of those characters. When he came on the scene, the first thought that, that I said, "This is a happy-go-lucky kid who's idealistic." He's dead. Mm. And that, that, that's exactly my opinion. And guess what? He is a happy-go-lucky character. He is idealistic. He is going to die. And you know that. And he does die. He does all th- he's all three of those checkboxes. But here's the deal. This, he is sort of the... He encompasses the entire theme of what this show is about. And that is normal people who will probably never be known sacrificing everything in order to take on this empire. Now, what I mean by that is when he comes on, he says, I'm writing a manifesto. And my first thought is nobody's going to read that. You're a nobody who is going to read a nobody's manifesto. And, and that's the entire thing that I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about, but his manifesto, his journaling, it really at the end, it starts narrating the action of the final episode. His words, I mean, this dorky little character who was obviously idealistic starts, you know, sort of inspiring Cassian in, in several ways. Now, he says, There's two things, two quotes I pulled out of this that I just absolutely love. He says, There'll be times when the struggles seem impossible. I know this already, alone, unsure. Dwarfed by the scale of the enemy. Remember this. Freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction. Now, I don't know if you noticed this. And I didn't notice it. I didn't pick up on this until somebody mentioned it. And then I went back and kind of the opening credits of every episode. Every single episode. The first episode, you know, it's just the drums. The second episode, they add a little bit of music here. And in the next episode, it's more instruments. And I'm talking about that first part right after the recap where it's sort of doing the, you know, get the Andor sign and all that stuff. Yeah. And every single episode, they had more and more and more music. And I think that, you know, when you get to that final episode, what do you have? You have them right before the funeral. They're warming up their instruments. Yep. It's just the drums. Everything is a slow buildup. And it just goes to show you that this, because here's the deal, that rebellion with her speech, <laughs> it, was, it was not necessarily planned. 
it reminds you of the old strikes that unions do and things like that. I think it was Screencast that brought that up on his YouTube channel this week. It reminds you of the old steelworkers type of, of union strikes. But it's slow. It's not, it's, you know, it just, it slowly builds up. And his words right there are so true. What are your thoughts on Nemec? Uh, and one of my favorite quotes from that, um, that's the next part. Tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks. It leaks. Authority is brittle. Oppression is the mask of fear. And in mask of fear, you just, you automatically connect that, that to Vader. And then you've got that, that moment where, you know, after, <clears throat> after the bomb goes off at the funeral and, you know, kind of chaos is everywhere and the, and the soldier orders his, his men to open fire. It's that it echoes right back to Cassian's line on Arkina five of power doesn't panic. And those Imperials were absolutely panicking. And that was the, the manifesto was just incredible. And, and Marva, if we give time to get into Marva, Marva was, was awesome too. I picked up on a lot of the, the same stuff, you, you did when when we first were introduced to to Nimic, you know, idealist philosopher. I, I I said I said after the first episode with him, I'm like that dude is not surviving to the end of the season. You know, <laughs> I mean, you you the, our first introduction to him is he's is a failure. He's asleep on watch, right? And he, and, and Skeen is like, dude, if we were in Saws Parsons, they'd kill you right now. But he's the first member of that Aldani crew to actually accept and trust Cassian. Exactly. Nobody, nobody else does. You know, and I, I love his little thing about the old tech versus the new tech and how he uses the old tech to navigate the eye and, and the ties can't because they they have new tech. And even but even after even after Nimic learns that Cassian is the mercenary, he doesn't write Cassian off. He doesn't treat Cassian as, as less than he, he he explores his thoughts on the matter and he adjusts his attitude. And then he has a, a discussion with Cassian. And he, he, you know, he calls Cassian his ideal, his ideal reader, because I, I think he sees, you know, working across context as an important step to the, to the broader revolution. And I think for me, it's easy to think back to Yavin five or, mm -hmm. or perhaps home one and, and the extras, the, the side characters we don't know about and thinking that a lot of them have the kind of story that maybe, that maybe Nimic has. And, and two, I don't know, but as a writer, just this idea that his words having this powerful effect long after he's, well, not long after, but after he dies, like he's gone, you know, and his words have this, have this effect. And I just, the, the connection between him and Jen, like when Jen and Cassian are on Scarif and they've sent the plans, they don't know if anybody was listening. They just have hope. And Nimic's in that same place as he's dying is in telling Vel to give the to give the manifesto to Cassian. He doesn't know if Vel's gonna do it. He doesn't know if Cassian's gonna accept it. He doesn't know if Cassian's gonna read it. All he has in that moment is hope. And it's the exact same thing that that Jen and Cass will have as they're sending the Death Star plans up. And I thought it was just beautiful. Yeah. There's another quote from that manifesto that's right before that. So a sentence right before the one you read and it says you know the imperials need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural now going back to what i was talking about earlier with ron you know i think we all agree had funds not been diverted from the tie defender program that thrawn was doing they probably would have won because thrawn 
he was tactical. He understood, you know, how to win battle and, and tactical operations and things like that. But the emperor, everything was about fear. Mm-hmm. It was about oppression. It was about using a fear. That was the entire purpose of the Death Star being built was this idea of fear because fear doesn't, because they didn't have anything. There was nothing else for them. And so when you go back to the prequels, you know, you see this with Palpatine and he says, you know, the dark side of the force is, is, is has a ways that some would consider to be a natural. And so you constantly have this, this idea of a non natural order that's sort of using fear as a way to oppress people. And when you get to that final speech, let's talk about that final speech. Marva. What are your thoughts? Whew. When, uh, well, first of all, when that, I, I was just so invested in B2, when that, when that Imperial's coming after B2, like my, my heart is like in my throat, like, no, not B2. Um, I was so glad when, when, when they, when they say B2, but um, I mean, you've got this amazing moment, you know, where she's talking about, you know, we've been asleep you know, we took their money and as soon as they were gone, we forgot about them and we thought we were safe and we were insulated and we were asleep and, you know, talking about how, you know, she wanted to be, she was always lifted up by, by the people that she saw. And now she wanted to lift people up and, you know, that she wanted them to, to wake up and to fight. And, you know, and what's so cool is that, you know, B2, B2 doesn't have a lot in common with the people around him. He's a droid, right? But the minute B2 gets knocked over is when Brasso attacks and that starts the whole thing off. Yeah. And I think it was kind of symbolic right there. Uh, You know, B2, He's not like C-3PO. He's not carrying the Death Star plans or anything like that. But he is so important in this critical role. And when, the, when he comes up there and he tries to throw his jacket over the hologram, and it only cuts off half of it. And the look on his face when he realized that he looked like an utter fool because he didn't shut it down. <laughs> it's brilliant. And when you look at her hologram, it's like, half cut out half and it's like you know you got that half idea of darkness half idea of of light and it's constantly the friction between light and darkness right there it's so beautifully done that i mean because this is one of those places where every shot matters and this is a this is a story you know we the dead always speak in in star wars we see that we see that with with obi-wan speaking to uh to uh to Luke, we see mm-hmm. that. We see that with Luke speaking to to Ray. Uh, we see that with Yoda. We see that with you know, constantly the dead. But in this, the dead are always speaking because, oh gosh, what was the kid that built the bomb? Oh, that was Summon Pack's son. Um, I remember his dad's name, but I can't remember his son's name. But it was it was Summon Pack. He was Summon Pack was the guy who was who had the transmitter. And he was tortured and eventually killed by the Imperials. And so his son, like the whole start of the episode, his son is soldering that bomb together, looking at his, at his father's picture. 
Yeah, the hologram. And it's like, that's another example of the dead speak. He's not even saying anything and he's speaking. He's inspired. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this, yeah, we could go on and on about some of these characters. But I think to me, this, what this shows, shows is that sometimes the, what, what creates rebellion, what fights up against fighting against wrong, is not necessarily the heroes that are always at the front and center. It's the little ones that will never be known who are sacrificing everything. And behind the ones who sacrifice behind the scenes. Like nobody's gonna know Luthen's name. Nobody's he's not doing this to be known. Uh Mon Motha, she's out there front and center. That's her job, and it is a sacrifice. What's his face? Who is with the ISB and can't get He's like, I got a, I got a child. I got a wife. Lonnie. Yeah, L Lonnie. Yeah. Like, I mean, everybody is sacrificing. But I think I think you see that point with Cassian when he finally, after he hears the words of Clem in that flashback scene, he's the only one that hasn't really been sacrificing this entire time. He's been, everything's been about him. And so right. finally, it, it just, it comes front and center right there and he has that pivotal moment where he's like he gets to that scene at the end he's like either kill me or let me in and you just I love like, that little wry smile by Luthen <laughs> well and I think Luthen knows that that clan uh, that that Cassian is like he he he's the type of guy you need because you know what was it was Cassian was like he's he was saying, you know, I just walk in like I belong. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. There's so much depth to this show, man. Is there any, we probably need to wrap it up. Is there anything else that you can think of off the top of your head that you want to toss out? Well, the, the, the only thing that, that I'll say, we, we, we touched on, on Cyril kind of briefly, but, you know, thinking about, you know, season two and I, I touched on the Gorman massacre just, Briefly, if you don't know, the Gorm Massacre is a real pivotal event in the in the beginning of the Empire. It's actually what causes Mon Motha to come out publicly for the rebellion. But I'm I'm real curious about Cyril Karn in that in that I believe Cyril Karn is a parallel character to Andor. And just as at the end of episode 12, we saw Andor's kind of end the rebellion, that story did not go at all like I thought. Like I figured, okay, he'd do the Aldani job and that would get him in with Luthen's crew and then he would just kind of progress into the rebellion. And that's not what happened at all. And the same thing with Cyril. Like I was like, okay, he's going to get discovered by Deidre and she's going to recruit him in the, in the ISB. But then in episode 12, we see Andor give himself to the rebellion but i think we also see cyril give himself to the empire remember that that deidre's man on the ground in ferrix was killed so she's got an opening right now and i believe they're on these two are on parallel paths and i believe to that end that cyril is actually going to be working on scarif during the rogue one attack and both cyril and cassian are going to die to the um to the the same death star blast and have that dark that dark poetry there. And I'm mm. really curious what happens to Deidre when she gets back. Like Ferrix is going to be a real negative mark on her record. And, and Blevin is going to, is going to jump on that, you know? And then, yeah, like, I think, I think certainly because, you know, they don't really care about the, the, you know, rising or whoever it is they were hunting the, what's his face. I mean, that's just, they just want to close that case. Right. And, 
everything with the ISB, he's like, you know, we're healthcare providers. You know, we, 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 that's the entire thing. We find diseases and we cure them. Yeah. And it's part of gas. Yeah. You know, you're not going to do that here. I mean, this is going to look bad on her in many ways. Um, Man alive, there's so much going on here. I mean, from the gong, you know, he's up there hitting the anvil and everything. Oh, I love the time grappler. And then they're like, because that's Ferrix's culture and the Empire's like, no, no, we can't have that. That's that's different. That's that's unique. We can't have that. You've got to fit. You know, they talk that whole episode about the box. Like, you've got to fit in the Empire's box. And of course, the poor stormtrooper they sent it there to shut the time grappler down doesn't have a chance. <laughs> oh, no. Not a so, man, this... Yeah. There's so much here to go into. Folks, um, you are probably screaming at your radio right now saying you didn't talk about this, you didn't talk about that. And you're probably absolutely right. We didn't talk about it. So in the comments on this episode, on the Facebook page, please chime in and tell us some of your thoughts, some of your theories. Talk about the areas you think you disagree with us on and the areas you think we uh, probably need to chat about a little bit more. But, hey, we, we could do a whole episode on the Fondor Hallcraft. Oh. <laughs> Man alive. All right. That might be one of my favorite, new favorite spaceships in, in the entire galaxy. Let's just say that. So, All right, folks. Uh, this is episode 24, by the way. We have been on the air for 24 straight weeks. And so next week is episode 25. It will be the season finale. We will be having John Adion, and we're going to be talking about his brand new book that's coming out, Drawn in Ash. Ooh. And, oh, yeah. Have you read it, man? No, oh, no. It's I got to get that on my TBR. Oh, man, it is so good. It is pretty much a retelling of the Book of Esther. Really Ooh, good. That's highly, awesome. I highly recommend it. Incredible magic system. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but we will get into them next week when he's on the show. And then we're going to take a few weeks off for Christmas and New Year's, and then we will get back into season two sometime starting in January. So look for new episodes to start coming out then. I really appreciate everybody tuning in and listening during these first 23, 24 episodes. We've had over 4,000 plays on the podcast. Each episode is averaging about 150, and I am just blown away that so many of you keep coming in each week to listen in and, and just be a part of two dads and or you know a couple of moms hanging out here just geeking out about silly stuff. So anyway, everybody, this has been day. Uh, uh, I'm getting tongue tied right now, but this has been Ted and JJ, <laughs> and this has been Geeky Dads talking about geeky things. Thanks for listening.